Hi there, welcome to episode 93. Today I have an interview with Carla Hannaford. Carla is a world-renowned biologist and educator who has extensively studied the developing brain of children. In particular, she looks at the connection between movement and brain development. And no surprise, she's a huge advocate for outdoor play. So today we're talking more about that. You are listening to the Simple Families Podcast, a Q&A style show that brings you solutions for living well with family. Here's your host, Danae Barahona. Hi, thanks for tuning in. This is Danae and welcome to episode 93. Today, I'm going to be nerding out on you a little bit. Last week, we talked to Linda Ockeson McGurk, the author of There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather, and we started the conversation around the importance of outdoor play. Linda provided us with a fabulous parent and cultural perspective on outdoor play. Today, we are switching gears slightly, and this interview with Carla is taking more of a science perspective. Carla's research primarily has looked at movement in childhood and how movement impacts the developing brain. In today's world, it's no surprise that children aren't moving enough. They're spending more time on technology. They are, from a younger age, sitting at desks and doing academic work earlier and earlier. The result is that our kids aren't moving enough, and we are seeing more and more movement difficulties. Not only are we seeing an uptick in diagnoses of sensory integration disorders and ADHD, but we're seeing a lot of kids who don't quite fit that criteria, but they have sensitivities. So they have a lot of clumsiness. They have difficulties moving gracefully. They have slight sensory sensitivities, which might not be enough to warrant treatment, but there's something that parents usually will pick up on. As I said, these issues are emerging quickly, and I think that as time goes on and the way that society is approaching childhood, we're going to see this more and more. So today, Carl and I are going to go more in depth on this, and we're going to talk more about the fact that our kids really need to move and they really need to be outside, not just to burn off energy, but to actually optimize their brain development. Now, I'm going to assume that most of you listening are brand new to understanding brain development, so I encourage you to go back one episode to episode 92. In episode 92, I went over a quick and easy 10-minute overview of some of the concepts that are really going to help you take away a lot from this episode and this interview. So for a quick and dirty understanding of the developing brain, go to episode 92. You can go to simplefamilies.com, episode 92. Or if you're on iTunes, you can just flip back one episode. I hope you enjoy this episode. And again, for links or for comments or questions, leave those for me at simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 93. Thanks for listening. Here's the interview. Hi, today with me I have Carla Hannaford, and I'm really excited to talk more with Carla about some of the topics that we've been discussing on Simple Families recently, including outdoor play and the importance of movement with our kids. Thanks so much, Carla. I'm glad to be here. Thank you. So, Carla, I have two kids of my own. They're one and four. And as they're getting closer to the kindergarten age, I've been really thinking hard about educational decisions, about what sort of education I envision for my own kids. And I have a hard time thinking about them going to a traditional school setting and sitting in a desk all day and going out for 20 minutes of recess. 
So I've been reading your book, Smart Moves, and there's a lot of things that really resonate with me in your book. And one of the things there's in, in the very beginning, you say, we can no longer limit the learning environment to sitting still, being quiet and memorizing stuff. And this is this really hit home with me, and I think that that very much is has is what has become of the educational system in America, at least. Can you speak more to that and your thoughts about that? Certainly, uh, Dinea. First of all, just a little history of myself. I grew up on a farm in Iowa. I was extremely active. We also had a little cabin in the woods in Utah that we spent time at in the summer. And uh, I I was a real nature kid and a, a tomboy and climbed trees and everything. And then I went to school. And school was a real challenge for me, um, even though I didn't mind it so much. Back then, they didn't have special ed, or I would have been in special ed because I was very kinesthetic. I needed to move. And actually, we know now that at least 85% of learners, of, of children, of everybody, actually adults also, have to move to learn. And uh, I didn't read till I was 10. And uh, luckily, at that time, there weren't all the pushes in order, you know, to read early and that sort of thing. So I made it through. Um, right now we're looking at a lot of information saying there's a real problem. First time in, in history that we have nature deprivation disorder going on where children are not in nature. They're not getting the basics of play in a natural setting. We know in our forests or, or even grasslands or anywhere that you are, nature, trees and the, um, different kinds of flowers and such have the uh, all of the mathematical skills written into their structure. And when children are in nature and they're getting a chance to play with and, and really explore nature at depth, they actually come away with a, a stronger sense of language and mathematics. And those, of course, are the things that schools are testing on today. And we find that there's a lot of problems in schools today because children aren't out in nature and playing. That's really interesting, Carla. And I have to say that this topic has really been on the forefront of my mind as I've seen my son. He's been in two different schools now. We were He was in a school when we lived in Dallas. And this past summer, we moved outside of New York City. And when we were in Dallas, I thought it was very interesting that about 30 to 40% of the kids were receiving physical and occupational therapy services. And I thought, oh, this has to be sort of an outlier. This can't be the norm. And when we moved to New York, I'm finding the same thing, that there's such a high amount of kids of, of this age, of these this, these preschool age kids that are requiring services for movement disorders and for sensory integration challenges. How how do you think that all ties into this nature deprivation? 
Oh, it all ties in. Okay, we are meant to move. We are meant to be on our bellies when we're babies so that we can work through a bunch of the different reflexes. Um, babies need to be on the belly so that they can lift up and do the what we call the tonic neck reflex. So important for the development of the body, the legs to work properly and the arms to work properly. And then they need to crawl, and they need to crawl at least until they're one. They should not be walking before that time. When we, when we, I know parents that say, oh, my child walked at seven months, and I go, oh, my gosh, are they okay? Because they need to crawl, that cross-lateral movement that occurs from the hands and the legs is essential for developing First of all, vision, um, getting the eyes to tracking together, but also it gets the whole, what we call the vestibular system or the balance system of the body aligned so that when they do stand up, they are stable. They can be stable. Um, so what we're finding now are all these children that uh, did not crawl long enough. And then, of course, when they do start standing up, they need to explore their world. They need to be climbing on things. And I know parents are so afraid these days, and it's crazy, but uh, our furniture was meant for children to be crawling around on and jumping on and playing on. And when they do that, they develop a sense within a sense of their bodies. And it's actually... All the scientists now are telling us that the way we actually learn is all through the body, through the senses, and through the movement, not through the brain. The, the brain is organized throughout our life by movement. And so um, the more movement a child can have and exploring, climbing, and, and pulling themselves up. And parents need to know that you know, children of early children are uh, mostly cartilage. And if they fall, they're not going to break anything or they're not going to hurt anything. They need to explore enough to know their body and what their limits are. They need to be pulling themselves up on ropes or uh, on swings to develop upper arm strength. Uh, they need to be walking on uneven ground that helps what we call the head riding reflex that helps the eyes to start teaming together so that when they do come to reading, their eyes will work together. Um, we know that when people are stressed, they actually shut down part of the brain and only use one eye. And so what we want is for children to be relaxed enough to be able to use both eyes, and they do that by getting the body in alignment. So the more <laughs> children can play, um, you know, in their bodies to really find out what their bodies can do and can't do. They need to find out for themselves, right? Instead of us as parents saying, no, you can't do this. That's too hard. That's too dangerous. And I think that's our tendency in this day and age. Is that what you see as well? Right. It's interesting. I've uh, 
been in what are known as forest kindergartens in Europe. They were actually developed in Germany over 100 years ago by Frederick Foible, and he said uh, the children are getting sick, they need to be outside. And so these forest kindergartens, the children are outside five to six hours a day, no matter what the weather. And um, Germany kind of forgot about it, but Scandinavia has picked it up. And, of course, I think you know that um, one of the things we're seeing is that the Scandinavian countries have the highest level of learning of any of the other countries in the world. And they have these forest kindergartens where the children go about the age of two to the age of six, and they're in the forest. And most of the time, 90% of the time, is spent in unadulterated play. In other words, play where it's not organized. It's where the children are doing the play themselves. They're playing with each other. They're playing with nature. They're learning. So unstructured, unadulterated play. And uh, it's wonderful. They're constantly exploring. Here's another thing that's so interesting about these forest kindergartens is, um, for instance, when I was in Sweden, I went to this one forest kindergarten, and we met at a building, and then we walked a half a mile into the forest. And the children were not taking the trail. They were climbing these big boulders. And here were these little tiny children attempting to climb on this boulder, and my impulse was to help them. And the adult says, don't help them. They, we don't help them unless they ask. And if they ask for help, we say, how shall I help you? So the child has to do some deductive reasoning. And if the child falls, which they sometimes do, um, the, the adults don't run to them immediately. The adults lean down. They see that they're not really hurt. And then... They hold their arms out, and the children come and run to them, and the, the parents hug them, and very quickly the child is off playing again. But they say that the child needs to know their mistake, needs to have that moment where the parent isn't immediately rescuing them to see what their mistake was so that they learn where their limits are. Absolutely. You know, I haven't visited a forest kindergarten yet, but I have on this Friday of this week, I'm actually making plans to go visit one. So I'm really excited to see that and to see the dynamics of the kids being able to be outdoors and to really be empowered to play and to create for themselves. And it makes me think, so I had just previously interviewed Linda Ockeson-McGurk, who just wrote the book, There's No Such Thing as Bad Weather. And Linda is a Swedish mother raising her kids in the U.S. And she talks a lot about how in Sweden that the Swedes consider the outdoors to be everywhere. So whether you're in the city or you're in the country or um, it's just as long as you are outside of a house and you have fresh air blowing on your face, that's that's <laughs> nature. And I think that there's something to be said about that. I think in the U.S., when we talk about nature, we think about going to the woods. And we do all live very busy lives. And 
we don't have the opportunity to get our kids to the woods every day. So how valuable is it to just be getting our kids outdoors in our own backyard or going for a walk if you live in the city? From a sensory perspective, how do you feel like that benefits our kids? Absolutely. It's perfect. Yeah. I know in big cities, um, I've worked a lot in Singapore, which is a big city, and just parents getting with their children outside, you know, like you say, taking a walk. You're feeling it on your, your body. You're feeling the, the earth beneath your feet, even though it may be concrete. You're getting that fresh air. You're getting a sense of smells and sights and um all of the, the sensory apparatus in our body is being activated fully. Right. So, yeah, we shouldn't underestimate that. And I think we do I, very often. And we have the tendency to keep our kids inside our homes, which are 72 degrees and the light is all mild and the sound isn't too loud or, and it isn't too quiet. And it just we sort of raise our young children a lot of times in these perfect stable, static environments from a sensory perspective. So it it makes all sorts of sense to me that we have all these kids with sensory sensitivities because they're not being exposed to much variation. Right. Absolutely. And then they're, they're also exposed to a lot of technology and they're exposed to electromagnetic fields are much higher in, inside a home than they are out in nature. And those electromagnetic fields, we know, actually interfere with our own electrical fields within our body and make it a little more difficult for us to take in information to learn. You have a daughter, right? I, I have two daughters, two actually. Daughters. Are they grown? They are both grown. Uh, one is 50 years old. The other is <laughs> 43. I have three grandchildren and three great-grandchildren. Oh, okay. So what are your thoughts about screen time for kids and the recommendations? I know that they've sort of been all over the board in recent years. What do you suggest for your own grandchildren and great-grandchildren? Okay. One of the things that Rudolf Steiner said, and and as I look at the whole physiology of the body and and our development, it makes a lot of sense. He said no television, no, none of this technology prior to the age of 11. Because during those early years, what's happening is the way the brain is developing, we call it global brain development, where the child is immersed in the sensory environment so that they can get a whole picture of their world. And then When they have that picture, they can then, about the age of 11, start to pare it down and look at uh, discriminating kinds of things. So this is um, different than this. I mean, they have to do that anyway, sensorily at the beginning, and that's very, very important. But about the age of 11, they've developed enough of the global brain to now be able to take the world and use it to come up with new ideas through their imagination. And um, they're going to be doing imagination early, which is really, really important. But they can now take and affect their world in a more linear, 
logical way at the age of 11. It's interesting to me that Steve Jobs, knowing what he did, um, would not let his children on a computer or on television before about the age of 11. Also did a talk, a big talk in San Francisco to the whole um, Waldorf Association there. And it had been, it was right after the BBC had been there doing a documentary on all of these Waldorf schools. And what they were doing it on was because here were all of these parents that were from Silicon Valley that were spending all of their days on computers. And they were sending their children to this Waldorf school that had them sign a contract saying no television, no no computers in the home, and certainly no phones to children until the 11. And, you know, we're seeing it now. It was interesting. I just recently taught in India, and there was a big article in the newspapers in, in uh, Mumbai, India, you know, asking parents to really cut down on screen time and eliminate it in many cases because they're finding it's affecting the child so much. Now, here's just another little piece to know about this. The screen time, and that's either television or computers, if you turn the lights off when you've got your television on, you'll notice that there's a flicker. And the programmers have learned something. They've learned that when they do light changes on the screen, and the same thing is true, by the way, with computers, there is a flicker. When there's a light change on the screen, the brain immediately says there's danger. It's like an, a wild animal coming out of the forest at you. There's a change of light, so um, there's a, a wild animal or something. So immediately we start producing two huge chemicals, adrenaline and cortisol. Both of these chemicals shut down the neocortex of the brain by 75 to 85%. And we go into reactive mode in order to save ourselves. And so here are these children with these high watching television with high levels of adrenaline and cortisol or playing on computers with high levels of adrenaline and cortisol. And when we turn the television off or we stop you know, their screen time, are they nice and calm? Do they go and play by themselves? <laughs> Not <No>. at all. <laughs> no, they are in survival. Yeah, and we, I found that with my four-year-old, and he absolutely loves screen time. And I have really had to cut back to the point where he gets just a little bit on the weekends, like he watches football with his dad, and we've cut it out completely during the week. And it's because of that reason that he just can't decompress afterwards, that even if it's five minutes, like sometimes he likes to play, he loves music, and he wants to sort of DJ and play music on my iPhone. And even if I let him just play music for five minutes, just that interaction with the screen, he just can't separate. He just has such a hard time coming off that high that he's getting from the screen time. It's called adrenaline addiction. And uh, our it's not just our children that are addicted. It's uh, the parents, too. And that's why, you know, 
So, and, and it's not healthy. It's just not healthy. Yeah. And you mentioned in, in Smart Moves, you, you said that there's this discrepancy between what science tells us that our kids need and what society tells us that our kids need. And marketing and the media is just so prevalent in our lives that there's there's a lot of parents out there that feel like if they don't get their kids on screens early that they're missing out. And but yet there's not I, I don't feel like we really have this identification with if we don't get our kids moving and we don't get our kids outdoors, they're missing out. Um, and there's just there's not as much there's not as much news coverage about that. There's not as much um, we don't hear enough about the importance of it. And that's why I was really excited to read Linda's book on this topic and your book. And I think that really trying to bring this information back to the forefront, because this is something that 50 years ago that Americans kind of took for granted. Is that true? Exactly. Because, you know, we didn't have all of these technologies at that time. Yeah. And even in my my generation, I'm 34. I had to think about it. <laughs> I'm 34. And I feel like my husband and I both grew up playing outside with unstructured play. And we we did watch TV, but not, I wouldn't say it was excessive. Um, but we had that experience of being out and playing by ourselves without our parents. And it feels like from talking to others my age that we are the last generation that really has had that experience. Yeah. I agree with you. Uh, there's a book by Mark Bowerlin. Uh, he's written an article called Driven to Distraction, but I think the book's name, and I should have gotten it for you, but it's um, How the Digital Age Stupefies Young uh, young Children. And oh, anyway, it's... I'll see if I can pull it up and we can put it in the show yeah. notes. Um, yeah, Mark Bowerlin. And, um, you know, there's a lot of research out there on this. And I'm seeing it, I guess, in, in the scientific articles I'm reading. But I also am seeing it in the popular press. You know, it is a problem. And parents, it's like they have no control over the children now, too, because the children are so addicted. Um you know, that if they don't get to play on the phone, they make a big scene of it. And it's right. And there's this real detox coming off of screen time for kids. And like I said, with my son that like, I know just coming off of five minutes, how difficult that is. And to think if he had really had set up this pattern of watching it for several hours a day, and the impact that that would have on him and how difficult it would be to separate from that. I can imagine that this idea of cutting back can be really overwhelming for parents because they're afraid of the lashback and afraid of this really intense reaction from their kids and not knowing how to manage it. That intense reaction comes basically because it's the cortisol level is so high. And then the only way it's detoxified is through the liver and it takes a little time. Um, you know, right now, the research that they did with the Kaiser Institute is showing that that many American children, I mean, a high percentage, are spending as much as 11 hours a day in, in screen time of one type or another. And that's crazy. Yeah, and that it, what it does is it makes them reactive. It makes it difficult for them to really learn. And it makes them... In a, a, 
they cannot come up with new creative ideas. And we need a generation coming up that can assist us right now to help the world. There's so much going on, and we need people with ideas that are going to help that. Absolutely. Now, you talk a little bit about, not a little bit, a lot actually, about the negative effects of stress on the developing brain and how stress is really damaging to the learning potential of a young child. Can you tell me more about that? That's something that I think that um, parents today really need to hear about because as parents, we're busy and we're stressed and we really pass that off to our kids. They see the way that we're living our lives and it's and they're just living in our reflection to some extent. Right. It's that mirror neurons, we call them in science. The children mirror what we do. They don't do what we say, but they absolutely mirror our actions. And if we're stressed, they're going to be stressed. And we, one of the best de-stressors that we know of is taking a walk. You do a cross-lateral integrated movement like just walking will actually stop the production of adrenaline and cortisol. Um, but stress, like I say, shuts down the brain. It shuts down our ba- ability to reason and to learn. And um, we as adults need to learn how to stop that. Um, I work with the brain gym work, which is like many other uh, movement kinds of activities, it's cross-lateral. So, you know, just like I say, taking a walk or uh, crossing the midline of the body, touching the right hand to the left knee while you're standing up. (laughs) Can you explain a little bit more about the importance of cross-lateral movements? What happens when you do cross-lateral movements that are integrated like that and that are slow, by the way, The slower they are, the more of the brain, the more of the muscles you have to use. Uh, And so things like Tai Chi and yoga are great, as well as things like the brain gym. But when you cross the midline of the body, touch the, the right knee with the left hand, you're activating both hemispheres of the brain. When we're under stress, and we see this in PET scans and in electroencephalograms and, and CAT scan, when we're under stress, the neocortex of the brain shuts down by 75 to 85%. And the, the only thing that's functional is the dominant hemisphere. And it's not very functional because most of it's shut down. And so when we are under stress or when our children are under stress and we want them to learn, it's, it's an oxymoron. They can't do it. And the w- way to get out of it is, is to move. That's the, the easiest way. So help me understand when a young child is integrating the left side and the right side of the brain, is it ever fully integrated or do you see these the dominant hemisphere um, become activated under times of stress and they need to be sort of rebalanced again? Is that something they just will be facing for the rest of their lives? Well, sure. Whenever we're under stress, that's what happens. But when they're playing, when they're having fun, when they're running around, when they're, you know, playing ball or when they're laughing and, and doing 
the arts, all of that integrates both hemispheres in instantly, instantly. It's so fun to watch. Um, I was just at the Dallas Children's Theater. Uh, just gave a little talk there. But they here they're taking inner city children from Dallas and they are having them work with theater. And whether it's making props or costumes or whether they're acting, all of them get a chance to act. And what they're doing is they're activating their whole being. And another piece that's so vital in here is their emotions. You know, when you're in a drama situation, when you're doing drama or, or theater, you're getting into different emotions. You get to, to test out different things that you're feeling. And it's so vital. It's so integrative for the brain. And we know that our emotions are energy in motion. They're how we see our world. If you watch children playing, they're laughing, and sometimes they're crying, and sometimes they're yelling. And they're doing all the things that help the brain to be fully wired to learn. And so we need to be doing that. Music is important, too. It does the same thing. So as parents, when we're watching our kids play, it sounds like the best thing we can do is to sort of watch from the sideline and not try to be, not try to, not disrupt what is naturally occurring. Is that, would you recommend that? Well, at times, but I think parents need to play. And I think we need to rough and tumble play. Dr. Penscap, who wrote the, the tome on play, which is so important, he says that Rough and tumble play, there are nerves in the brain just for rough and tumble play. And they're not just in children. They're in adults, too. And so we need to get down on the floor with our children, crawl around and roll around. So here's another piece to this that's very important, and it's touch. Whenever we touch someone, and especially on the back, you know, like the shoulders and the back, uh, we produce a chemical called brain-derived nerve growth factor, which helps our nerves to grow. We know that we're growing new nerve cells till the day we die now. Um, at least 60,000 a day if we're joyful, if we're playing, if we're enjoying our world. And um, so, you know, as parents... Get it, you know, not being afraid to to be childlike, to get down on the floor and play, and get down in the grass and roll around with our children. Rolling is a great activity that activates the balance system of the body and helps us to be more aligned and more stable, and uh, activates the whole brain. So. Yeah, we can be on the sidelines and, and not interfere, but I think a lot of times children don't know how to play today, and it's because their parents don't know how to play. And I think we have got to, as adults, get down and play. I get down with my great-grandkids, uh, with Kaysen, who's two and a half, and I we're rolling all over the floor, and we're making up games and, you know, I think it's really, really important. You know, just one more thing I think that's really important, and that is being present. 
And um, we are so distracted. There's so many distractions in our world today. And especially women. Men tend to be better players than, than women because they're not constantly multitasking everything. And women are great multitaskers. But the thing is, what psychologists have found is that when we can absolutely be present with another person, all they need in a day is like 15 minutes of somebody being absolutely present with them to feel safe to go explore their world. And that means, I think, too, with our spouses and each other, just really taking the time to stop, look at this person, listen to them. You don't have to have the answers, but just listen to them and give them that safety. I know with children, when I can do that with my great-granddaughter, grandson, uh, just get down on their level and look at them and just listen to them. You know, my granddaughter is six and or my great-granddaughter is six and my great-grandson is two and a half. When I can just listen to them, it's less than a minute and they're ready to go off and play. But they need us really to be present. I think we need to let go of working ourselves to death to give our children stuff. Quality over quantity. It's not about being 100% present 100% of the time. It's about spending a few minutes here and there really being there. And of course, we all have to go back and do the laundry or the dishes or whatever it is. But really taking those pauses, pauses and breaks to really be there with our kids. Thank you so much, Carla. This has been so enlightening. I'm such a fan of your work. And I think that this is something that in the next 20 or 30 years, I think we're going to be hearing so much more about. And I think that your contributions to this field are obviously going to be so important for such a long period of time. So I thank you so much, not only for your time and for this interview, but for the work that you've been doing for so many years. Well, thank you for doing the work that you're doing to me. Thanks for tuning in. This is a topic that infinitely fascinates me, and you'll be hearing about more in the coming weeks and the coming months. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love to hear your perspective. You can go to simplefamilies.com forward slash episode 93 and leave your questions and comments there. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please go to iTunes and leave a rating or review. That really helps this show to reach more people. Thanks for tuning in.